and at an alarming rate. Doesn't it seem like it's picked up even in the last few years? It seems like we're really headed south quickly. And what does this have to do with Genesis? Well, what if there's a connection? Because I want to suggest to you that all the problems that we have in society can be traced back to a broken law of God, where people have decided, we're not going to do what the Bible says, we're going to do it this other way, and that causes problems. And the intellectual justification that people will attempt to give to justify their sin is, well, we don't believe the Bible anymore. It's been disproved by science, especially in Genesis, right? That's the place where people say, you can't trust the Bible there because we know millions of years of evolution is the way that life came about. Nobody believes in that Genesis stuff anymore. Well, that's what, that's what they claim. I want to suggest to you the real issue behind the problems that we see in the world today is the same as the issue between creation and evolution. It's really the issue of God's word versus man's word. When there's a conflict between the two, who are you going to go with? That's really the issue. I want to suggest to you the loss of biblical authority beginning in Genesis is the root of the decline of Christian America. It used to be in this nation because of our common Christian heritage. People had, even people who didn't profess Christianity, they had kind of a biblical morality, really, because they were surrounded by many Christians and and in this nation that has laws that are based on the Christian ethic. And so you could say things like abortion is wrong and homosexual behavior is wrong, adultery is wrong, and people would say, of course, I understand that. But today that foundation shifted. Today you say abortion's wrong, homosexual behavior's wrong, adultery's wrong. People say not according to my rules because they're, they're not standing on biblical authority anymore. They've rejected the Bible because they've rejected the first verse of the Bible in the beginning God. Nobody, they don't believe that anymore. And so that's a problem. And that's really what evolution is. And when I talk about evolution, I don't just mean change. That's one of the meanings of the word. We all agree things change. Uh, the question is, do microbes eventually become people? And I don't believe they do. But in the evolutionary view, uh, all life on Earth is supposedly descended from a common ancestor over hundreds of millions of years. Now, I would reject this view, but if you embrace this idea that Darwin promoted and others since him, uh, if, you, if you believe in that, then that means the Bible's not really true, in which case the doctrines that stem from it are not true. You see, what you believe about origins will have consequences for your other beliefs if you're a logical person, okay? So if creation's true, then that means God's word is true because that's what the Bible teaches. Then you'd expect to have certain consequences from that, like laws. Where do we learn that God gives commandments to human beings? Well, it's in Genesis, isn't it? God gave commandments to Adam and Eve, right? To go and multiply and to not eat from the forbidden fruit and so on. And where do we learn that Breaking God's law has consequences. That's in Genesis. If you eat from that tree, you will surely die, right? That's in Genesis. Uh, that God is a linguistic being, that he speaks the universe into existence. That's in Genesis. And that's why God can communicate laws to us. Those are all Genesis themes. So the idea of laws, an absolute moral code that's over all human beings because we're all made in God's image, that's all in Genesis. Marriage, where do we learn that marriage is one man and one woman united by God for life? That's in Genesis, isn't it? That's where God created uh, Adam and Eve. He created them male and female. So that's where we learn that there's two genders, exactly two, not the 137 that are promoted by the left, right? That's in Genesis. That's where we learn what, gen what marriage is. And, and Genesis 2 specifically says that. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Jesus quoted that when he was explaining uh, marriage to the to religious leaders in Matthew 19. They're asking him about divorce. Jesus went back and quoted Genesis 1 and 2 as the foundation, the historical foundation for marriage. 
goes back to a literal creation. Standards, standards of behavior, standards of clothing. I noticed you're all wearing clothes today. I appreciate that. I'm sure you do too. Uh, it wasn't originally that way, but where do we learn about the origin of clothing? It's in Genesis 3, right? It's right, it's right back in Genesis. Meaning of life. Why is it that human life has such value? Why is human life so precious? Why is it I can't just go out and shoot somebody that I really don't like? Well, that, would, that person's made in the image of God and therefore deserving of dignity and respect. He has rights. And where do we learn that human beings are made in the image of God? That's in, oh, that's in Genesis, isn't it? Yeah. So that's, in fact, Genesis 1. God made man in his own image. Male and female, he created them, right? Genesis 1. So all these standards that we think are very important, and they are, they have their historical foundation in Genesis. And so if you're not convinced that Genesis is true, why would you believe any of those doctrines that stem from it? That's what I want to know, if you're going to be logically consistent. See, we have another option today. Because there are those who teach, no, Genesis, that's false. Evolution, millions of years of evolution is the way life came about. Well, then why would you have laws? Because if you think about it, evolution is supposed to proceed by the strong, dominating over the weak and eliminating them. That's supposed to be how it works. And yet laws are designed to protect the weak from the strong, aren't they? That's their purpose. And so laws are anti-evolutionary by their very nature. You can't make sense of laws from an evolutionary foundation. Or, or for that matter, why not do what you want with sex? If, if we're just evolved animals, animals do what they want, why shouldn't we? Or abortion, right? I mean, if there's too many cats, what do you do? You get rid of the spare cats. If there's too many kids, oh, just get rid of them, right? Get rid of spare cats, get rid of spare kids. And, and if, you, if that sounds horrible to you, it should, because humans are different from cats. Humans are made in God's image, right? Cats are not made in God's image. Cats are really not made in God's image, right? They're different. They're in a different category. God cares about animals too, but not to the same extent those creatures that he made in his own image. Human beings are very precious in his sight. So what we need to understand, and by the way, I'm not suggesting that evolution is the cause of all those social ills. Sin is the cause of those social ills. We need to understand that right away. But I am suggesting that evolution gives people a way to try and justify that sin in their minds, right? Because you, can't, you cannot defend these doctrines on that foundation. If you believe in evolution, there's no basis for marriage. Marriage is just a cultural trend if there's no Adam and Eve. And hey, the culture changes. Why shouldn't the definition of marriage change? And that's exactly the argument that the secularists make, isn't it? Things are changing. Let's, you know, marriage can be whatever you want it to be now. We need to recognize that our foundations are under attack. And if you can't defend creation, you can't defend the doctrines that stem logically from it. That's the issue. Uh, the church, for the, for the most part, I mean, there are individual exceptions, but for the most part, we gave up defending Genesis about two centuries ago. And once that happened, we, we started seeing these other doctrines that stem from Genesis, we started to see them erode. And we're seeing the results of that today. It's rather alarming. But people get intimidated. Christians get intimidated. We shouldn't, but we do, right? Because there are some brilliant people who believe in evolution, and I don't deny that. I got to work with some very brilliant people at the University of Colorado, and I have a great respect for them, but they would disagree with me about origins. They would, they would believe in millions of years of evolution. And a, a lot of Christians get intimidated by that. And they think, well, there are so many smart people that believe in evolution. Maybe that's the way God did it, theistic evolution. 
but if evolution's the way God did it, then Genesis is not literally true, is it? And, and there are some professing Christians who would say that. They'd say, yeah, Genesis isn't, it's not meant to be understood as literal history. It's just poetic in nature, or it's maybe like a parable. It contains some spiritual truth, but it's not meant to be understood that God really created in six days and things like that. But Genesis isn't written in a poetic style or as a parable. It's written as history. You know those verses that you love to read before you go to bed, and so-and-so begets so-and-so, and he begets so-and-so. Those uh, genealogies that you find, like in Genesis 5. Well, those verses are there for a reason. They're there to tell us that these are real people that lived, and it gives us their names, and the names of at least one of their children, and all kinds of boring information, like how old they were when they begat that person, and how long they lived afterwards, and you add it up, and sure enough, it, it gives the total age, right? The Hebrews could add. They were not common core educated, so they could actually do math. So there's that. But see, that's, that's the way the Jews recorded their history. And that indicates that that's not like a parable. Parables usually don't even have specific names anyways. Usually there was a certain man or there was a king, what have you. A parable, you try to make it as succinct as possible to make one point where you're, you're, you're explaining a spiritual principle using something that we're familiar with physically. That's not what's going on here. There's no analogy there. It's just straightforward history. Nor is Genesis poetic. I mean, that would be a terrible poem, wouldn't it? And it's very obvious if you know something about the Hebrew language. Hebrew poetry is not like English. We tend to focus on rhyme and meter. In Hebrew, they focused on parallelism. That's where you, well, there's different types, but one type is where you say something and you say kind of the same thing using different words. Like Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. You see how those two go together? Sky and heavens go together, declare and proclaim go together, and so on. That's, and you won't find that in Genesis, right? I mean, you might find an individual statement that somebody makes that's poetic in nature, but Genesis is recording history. It's not written poetically at all. It's written in straightforward historical narrative, and Jesus took it that way. He took Genesis as the f historical foundation for marriage in Matthew 19, for example. And by the way, those genealogies lead up to Jesus Christ. You can read about those in uh, Matthew and in Luke, where those are recorded. And, and so there's an inconsistency for those Christians who say, I believe in Jesus, praise God, I believe you, you know, I'm glad you do, and that's, that's important. But then they say, but I think Adam's just a metaphor. But Jesus is descended from Adam. You can't have a real person being descended from a metaphorical person, right? That's not gonna work. It's, it's important that Jesus is descended from a real Adam, because that means that, and, and so are we all, Right? Acts 17, God is made from one man or from one blood, all nations. That means we're all descended from Adam and Eve. Okay, And that's important because that means Jesus is our relative. He's our blood relative. He's our distant cousin, as it were, or distant brother, if you will. And why is that important? Because according to biblical law, only a relative can save you. There's a principle called the kinsman redeemer throughout the Old Testament. It has to be a blood relative that takes your place on the cross. That's why God had to become man in order to pay your penalty. Now, Jesus remained God as well. He took on human nature. He's man, and that's why he can take your place on the cross because we're of one blood, you see, meaning we're all related. And he's also God, which means he can pay an infinite penalty. So that's why it had to be the God-man to die on the cross to take our place. The Bible says the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, Hebrews 10.4. Now, they were used symbolically in the Old Testament, right, to teach the Jews about substitutionary atonement, to show them 
the devastating effects of sin to show them what the Messiah would do in reality. The, the animals merely symbolized that. They don't actually pay for sin. No one was ever saved by animal sacrifice. You understand that. It, the Old Testament Jews were saved if they looked forward to the Messiah and trusted in him. Jesus is the one that pays for sins. And he can do that because he's a blood relative. Why can the blood of bulls and goats not take away sins? Because we're not related to them. Unless, of course, evolution's true, in which case we are related to them. And that doctrine's gone. You see how the gospel message goes back to Genesis? You know, the gospel, gospel means good news, right? The good news is that Christ provides salvation for sin. But in order for that to make sense, you need to understand the bad news. And Genesis gives us the bad news that human beings have rebelled against God from the very beginning. And we are traitors, and we deserve death. We deserve an infinite death for sinning against an infinitely holy God, and only Jesus can save us. So you see, the, the God, the Genesis really gives us the bad news that makes sense of the good news. Putting it another way, which Adam is non-essential to the gospel? Is it the first Adam that plunged the world into darkness? We've inherited his sin nature that, that made it right for God to, um, to condemn all humanity. Or is it the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who took our place, paid for our sins on the cross, that we might be redeemed to God? Without the first Adam, there's no need for the last Adam. And if you don't understand that and you're just preaching the gospel, which we should be doing, of course, but if you're saying trust in Jesus to be saved, people say saved from what? I'm basically a good person. You've heard people say that? Yeah, I think I'd go to heaven. I mean, I'm basically good. I haven't killed anybody. Well, neither did Adam. Adam ruined the world by his sin, and his sin was not one that we think of as an egregious sin. It's not like he killed anybody. He just broke his diet. But you see, it was something that God told him not to do, and that made it high treason against the king of kings. The Bible really is the history book of the universe because it starts in the beginning God created, and it tells us the important events that have happened in terms of our relationship with God. And a lot of people like the morality that's in the Bible, but they want to try to separate it from the history. You can't do that, though, because the morality is linked to the history. Why is it wrong to murder? Because human beings are made in the image of God. That, that, that moral truth is connected to the historical truth that's found in Genesis. So you can't separate them. Jesus put it like this when he was speaking to Nicodemus. He said, I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, Jesus was asking Nicodemus to be consistent. And a lot of people today are not very consistent. They want to embrace the heavenly things the Bible says, but reject the earthly things. Earthly things like the days of creation or the flood that happened at the time of Noah. Historical events that happened in earth history. The Bible talks about those. And it talks about heavenly things like salvation. But if you say, yes, but I'm not sure that Genesis is literally true. I'm not sure that God got the details right there. If God didn't get the details right in Genesis, how can you trust that he got the details right on how to inherit eternal life? You see, it's very inconsistent for people to embrace one and reject the other. Can God, is the Bible really understandable? Can God communicate to creatures that he made in his own image? I think he can, right? God's a linguistic being. He knows how to communicate. I think any God who can speak the universe into existence can probably write a book about it, right? I mean, of the two, that would be the easier task. I've written a few books. It's not all that difficult, right? But I've never spoken a universe into existence. See, the Bible really is pretty clear in its main teachings. It's just people don't like what it has to say. That's really the issue. And so when you have God's infallible word and you have man's fallible word, 
when people try to make those two things agree, one of them is going to be modified. And a lot of people want to have a foot in both camps. They want to say, I'm a Christian, I believe the Bible. That's great. But they say, I also want to believe in millions of years of evolution because that's what the academics believe, most of them anyway. Well, you're going to have to modify one of them. And the one you modify is the one you don't really have your faith in. And this is not the way Jesus responded when the Pharisees and Sadducees had altered God's word for the sake of their tradition. They were masterful at it, reinterpreting God's word to fit their traditions. And Jesus would respond with things like, it is written, have you not read? Jesus stood on the authority of the written word as his ultimate standard. And I think that's, that's awesome to think about considering Jesus is God. Because he could have said, because I'm God and I said so. <laughs> that would have been perfectly legitimate. But Jesus stood on the written word, which his Holy Spirit inspired in the first place. That's an example for us to follow. We can't say, I'm God and I said so, but we can say, God has said in his word, and that settles the matter. You can think of the culture war that's going on today a bit like these two cities. You have the city of God, Christianity, which is based on creation. God's word is true from the beginning. All those Christian doctrines going back to Genesis, right? And then you have, on the other side, you have secular humanism. That is the other main religion that is competing with Christianity in this nation today. There are other false religions as well. Secular humanism is the big one. That's the one that's made great strides in the last few years in winning people to its point of view. Secular humanism is based on evolution. It's based on the idea that human beings are the greatest thing to evolve from this line, that there's no God who's above us, that y and so we can make our own rules and so on. That's secular humanism in a nutshell. And there are certain symptoms that arise from that way of thinking. And, and human beings have always kind of had that way of thinking where we can challenge God. I mean, that goes back to Eve when she decided that she would test God's word and listen to Satan. But, but these kind of issues, you know, racism, abortion, and so on, that they, were, they went up by orders of magnitude once Darwin's Origin of Species came out and people started to think in a secular worldview. Uh, Darwin was a huge racist because he believed that there were different races of people and that some were more evolved than others. And of course, he put himself at the top. But uh, see, biblically, you can't con be a consistent Christian and a racist because biblically, there's only one race, the human race, right? We're all descended from Adam and Eve and we can explain the little genetic differences, the different shades of skin color and eye color and so on. That, the, the dispersion at Babel answers a lot of those issues, but there's one race, human beings. Or abortion, for that matter. Again, get rid of spare cats, get rid of spare kids. That's the evolutionary view. If we're just, if we're just like animals, you get, you'd euthanize animals, why not euthanize people? In the, sec in, in the Christian worldview, you can't do that, right? Because human beings, we're different from animals. I mean, we're I understand we're classified as, as a mammal under the Linnaean system, but, but we're different in that we're made in God's image, and that's unique. That's a unique privilege in God's creation. And so while Christians are fighting those those billboards, and, we're, and we should be doing that. We should be fighting against racism, racism, abortion, and so on, and sexual perversion, and what have you. But the, the secular humanists are smart. They're aiming at our foundation. They're saying, you can't believe in creation anymore. That's been scientifically disproved. Now, I beg to differ, and I'm happy to debate people on that issue, but nonetheless, that's what they claim, and that convinces a lot of people. And the, and the worst thing we could be doing is helping them. There are Christians who say, it doesn't matter what you believe about Genesis, Zap, as long as you trust in Jesus. And, and I'll, I'll grant trusting in Jesus is the most important thing, but Jesus did believe in Genesis. He quoted from it. 
Okay, so there is a, there's a connection there. So what's the solution? I think it's fine to zap those billboards. We do need to do some of that, but we need to defend ourselves as well. When evolutionists make these really bad arguments against creation, we need to point out that's not a good argument. That's, that contains errors in reasoning, what we call logical fallacies. Uh, we need to do some damage ourselves and point out that evolution is a scientifically bankrupt conjecture about the past. That's all it is. It's not, it's not even, a th people say, well, it's just a theory. It's not even a theory. It's a conjecture or a speculation about the past that does not have scientific support. Creation is confirmed by science. Science makes sense in light of biblical creation. And so we need to repair that damage and, sh and, and tell people you can trust in, in the details of Genesis. It's literally true, it's real history. And then I like how this is illustrated because we're not shooting at the people. Uh, we want them to be saved. We're shooting at that, that city that represents a worldview that's contrary to God's word and therefore needs to be cast down. And by the way, it is going down. I read the end of the book, God wins, right? It, it, so there, I mean, there, there's no way this can possibly succeed because God is all powerful and he will accomplish all his good pleasure according to Isaiah 46. So th this, is gonna, this is gonna go down. We just wanna see as few victims as possible taken with it. We want those people to swim over here and join us on the city of God, we want them to be saved. That's why I do what I do. This is not an academic game for me. I want people to be saved. That's why I do it. So, well what about the time scale of creation? There's some controversy there, although there really shouldn't be. The Bible says God created in six days. It's pretty clear about that. Human beings are made on day six, along with land animals. And that was uh, a few thousand years ago, because if you add up the ages and the genealogies, you get about 2,000 years between Adam and Abraham, another 2,000 years between Abraham and Christ's earthly ministry, and that was about 2,000 years ago. Something like 6,000 years ago that God created heaven and earth and all that's in them. Can't get an exact date, because we don't know the, how they rounded the years and so on, but it's, it's around 6,000 years. It's certainly not gonna be millions or billions. And that really bothers people because if you go through the public school system, you've been brainwashed to believe in billions of years. Because you'll find that in all the textbooks. The fossils allegedly are millions and millions of years old. You'll see that in the textbooks, right? There it is, millions of years. And I confirmed it on the internet, so it's gotta be true, right? Well, we get intimidated, don't we? We get intimidated. We think, well, there's a lot of brilliant people who believe the fossils were deposited over millions of years, so maybe they were. That's gotta be the way it is, so. So maybe I'm reading the Bible wrong and maybe, we got, maybe there's actually millions of years in there that I just can't, I can't see where to put them. Well, where would you put the millions of years into the biblical timeline? You can't do it between Adam and Christ because that would make nonsense of those genealogies. There's just not that many people between Adam and Christ. It's consistent with about 4,000 4, years, right? So people try to put it in the creation week because that's the only place they can think to do it and, and even the secularists agree human beings don't go back like 100 billion years. So it would have to be before Adam that you put the millions of years. So where are you gonna put the millions of years in the creation week? Uh, some people try to put it before the creation week. They'll say that millions of years happened before the beginning, right? But that's pretty easy to refute because if the millions of years happened before the beginning, then the beginning wouldn't be the beginning. It would be the much later, right? It's, and that's not what the Bible says. It's not in the much later that God created the heavens and the earth. It's in the beginning that he made them. So that's not gonna work. Some people try to put a gap in between verse one and verse two, and they'll say millions of years of stuff happened there for which there is no evidence in scripture. And there's evidence against it. I'll come back to that one later. 
One of the most common that you'll hear today is that the days really weren't days at all. God really meant to say that he made in six ages, perhaps hundreds of millions of years each. And then of course my question is, then why didn't he say that? Why didn't he say six days? Because he says six days. Now some people say, well, well, there is no Hebrew word for a long period of time, which is not true, by the way, but they'll, they'll make that claim. And that's such a weird claim. It's like God got around, you know, creating, oh, I forgot to make a word for a long period of time. I'll just have to use day and hope they figure it out. That's absurd. God's not going to forget something like that. And by the way, why, there are several Hebrew words that indicate a long period of time, like olam, which means a long period of time. Okay, so God, God could have said it that way if that's what he meant. But he said he made in six days. And some people say, oh, but no, God's, you know, his time's different from our time because 2 Peter 3.8 says that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years. So there you go. I think it's interesting. They only quote the first part of that verse. What does the rest of the verse say? That one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Cancels that right out, you see. People want to go only halfway around the loop. They don't want to take it back to its uh, original. And is, is this, when we read this in context, is this referring to the days of creation at all? It's not, no, it's referring to God delaying judgment. It's explaining God's patience by pointing out he's beyond time. That's really the meaning of the verse. It's not giving you permission to change the word day everywhere you see it in scripture to a thousand years. And by the way, that would make the earth 12,000 years old rather than 6,000 if you made each day of creation a thousand years. It doesn't get you anywhere close to the 4.5 billion that the secularists need to make evolution sound plausible. And that is the, by the way, that's the reason for the billions of years. Okay, at least that's the reason why it's, why it's stayed popular, is because everyone knows that evolution would be ridiculous on, in a 6,000 year time scale. I would argue it's ridiculous on any time scale. But they, you know, you think, well, a billion years, anything can happen in a billion years. It makes, it makes the impossible sound plausible. That's why they'll never give it up. The secularists will never give up the billions of years. But no, the, the Bible is very clear that God made in six days. He uses the ordinary Hebrew word for day, which is yom in Hebrew. It's used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament in singular and plural form. The plural form is yamim. Why do people only question the days in Genesis? Isn't that true? It seems like in other scriptures, we don't have any confusion about what a day is, right? Like how long was Jonah really in the belly of the great fish? Were those ordinary days? You ever hear anybody say, no, oh, no, I think they were a thousand years each because a day's like a thousand years. He would have been in there a very long time, right? It's no wonder he repented. He was in there 3,000 years. For some reason, we don't get confused on that. Or how long did Joshua really take to march around the walls of Jericho? Ordinary days? Oh, no, millions of years. He was going around there for millions of years, right? It's, look at that rut that he dug out there over millions of years. <laughs> for some reason, we don't get confused on that. Well, the Hebrew word yom really does mean day. Now, it is true that in certain contexts, it can be used non-literally to indicate a period of time longer than 24 hours. But that's primarily in the poetic lit literature and generally when used as a prepositional phrase, like the day of the Lord. I do think the day of the Lord is, can be longer than a 24-hour period. It's not just an earth rotation, okay? And that's the same with our English word for day. We, we have non-literal uses of our English word for day. You might say back in my father's day. Right, That would be a period of time, longer than 24 hours. It wouldn't be millions of years, but it would be longer than 24 hours. We get that. It's being used non-literally. Back in my father's day, it took three days to drive across Texas during the day. Now, that in that little sentence there, you've got the word day used three times, and I'll bet you didn't have any trouble understanding it. 
because you used context. You used the surrounding words to constrain the meaning. So back in my father's day, that would be a period of time longer than 24 hours, it took three days. Those would be ordinary days, ordinary earth rotations, because it's got a number with it, right? Three days to drive across Texas during the day. That would be the light portion of an ordinary day. So that's pretty clear. Context is what determines meaning. Most words have more than one meaning. You look in a dictionary, definition one, definition two, 2A, 2B, 2C sometimes, right? And, the, and you think, what's well, amazing we can communicate if words can mean all these different things? We do it by context. We do it because in a well-constructed sentence, only one meaning for each word will work. And so that's true of the Hebrew language as well. It's true of any language. Let's take a look at the Hebrew word for day outside of Genesis 1, where we all agree what it means, and we'll look at it in context. For example, when the word day is used with a number, like the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, like that, it's always an ordinary day. Always translated that way. Of course, if the Bible said, you know, on the third day he went up to such and such a city, you'd understand that's the third earth rotation. It wouldn't be a third long period of time. It certainly wouldn't be millions of years. That happens over 400 times. Outside of Genesis 1, we all agree with that, what that means. There's no confusion outside of Genesis. Evening and morning, even if the word day isn't there, what's an evening plus a morning? That's a day, right? Those are the boundaries of a day. You add it up, you get a day. That happens 38 times outside of Genesis 1. We all agree those constitute ordinary days. If I said there was evening that day, you'd know it's an ordinary day. If I said there was morning that day, you'd understand it's an ordinary day. So evening with day or morning with day, either one of those indicates an ordinary day. They happen 23 times each outside of Genesis 1, and of course those indicate ordinary days. If I said there was day, then there was night. Night associated with day would indicate an ordinary day, wouldn't it? Pretty clear. So you got it? Day with a number, evening and morning together, evening with day or morning with day, or day contrasted with night. Any one of those indicates an ordinary day. Well, let's go to Genesis 1 and see if we can figure out what God meant when he said he created in six days. So Genesis 1, verse 5, and God called the light day. So day is when it's light out. That would have to be an ordinary day, wouldn't it? And the darkness he called night. You got night associated with day. That's got to be an ordinary day. You got evening associated with day. That's got to be an ordinary day. You got morning associated with day. That's got to be an ordinary day. You got evening and morning together. That constitutes an ordinary day. And you got a number with it. Wow, it's like God used every contextual indicator he could possibly have used to indicate those are ordinary days. The text is so clear. Well, what about the other days of creation? Were they ordinary as well? Let's take a look and see if there's any grammatical clues here. Evening, morning, number, day. 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 It's pretty clear. It's almost as if God's saying, see, they're ordinary days, and in case you still don't get it, they're ordinary days, and in case you're a little thick, they're ordinary days, and in case you're really intellectually challenged, they're ordinary days. It's pretty clear. Now, some people say, oh, but the sun wasn't made until the fourth day. Well, that doesn't matter, right? I mean, it, it's the primarily the rotation of the earth that sets the length of the day. That's what determines the 24 hours. As long as you have a light source and a rotating planet, you're going to have a day, you're gonna have day and night. Did we have a light source for the first three days? Genesis 1, 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Yeah, we had a light source. Did we have a rotating planet? Evening and morning were the first day. Yeah, we had a rotating planet. It's just God replaced that temporary light source with the sun on day four, 
perhaps so people would be less inclined to worship the sun, as most pagan cultures did. So God displaced it a few days. Maybe his way of saying, the sun is not the primary source of life. I'm the primary source of life. The sun's just something that God made to sustain the life that he created. You know, all the other units of time have a basis in astronomy, but not a week. A day is a rotation of Earth on its axis. A month is the amount of time it takes the moon to go through its phases. A year is the amount of time it takes the Earth to orbit the sun, all based in astronomy, but not seven days in a week. It's based on history. That's how long God chose to take to create and rest. That's where we get the seven days. And the Bible's explicit about that in Exodus chapter 20. You know Exodus 20, that's the Ten Commandments, right? Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and six days you do all your labor, the seventh is the Lord's, this pattern of six, six days of work and one of rest. Why? Verse 11 is the explanation, because that's what God did. And he uses exactly the same word for day. In the plural form, yamim, which is, which is never a long period of time, yamim's always literal in scripture. So my point is, if God really had created over hundreds of millions of years, you'd have an awfully long work week. You'd never make it to the weekend. You'd die first, right? Back in Martin Luther's time, there were some people who were trying to squeeze the days of creation into one day and say God really made everything in one day. And I love how Martin Luther responds to this. He says, how long did the work of creation take? When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days are one day. And I love this last part, he says, but if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. It's a great quote. We don't have to understand how God does what he does. In fact, I doubt we can understand the majority of what God does. I mean, can, can you explain the details of the resurrection of Christ? Because I can't. But I trust that God can do those kind of things because he's all powerful. So that's what we need to remember. Well, there's the gap theory then for folks who say, yeah, there's no doubt the days are ordinary, but maybe we can get the millions of years in between verse one and verse two. So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and then millions of years of stuff happened. Maybe, maybe Satan was given charge over that original earth, and maybe there was Lucifer's flood when he rebelled, and, and millions of years of stuff happened. And then they'd like to translate verse two, and the earth became without form and void. You can't really translate it that way, though. The Hebrew word there, ta just means was. But it turns out you can't put a gap of time between verse one and verse two based on the, the Hebrew grammar. This is Genesis one in Hebrew. Hebrew reads right to left, it's opposite of English. And so uh, when we look at verse two, it has this grammatical construction called a vav disjunctive. What's that? Well basically when you have the word and followed by a non-verb, like the earth, right? The earth is not a verb, it's a noun, okay? You remember your elementary school grammar. So, and the earth, when you have a sentence that starts that way, that's a vav disjunctive. Now, what does that mean? What does a vav disjunctive do? Well, it basically clarifies what was stated previously. Okay, so a vav disjunctive is a clarification or explanation of what was previously stated. So, verse two, my, my point is verse two does not follow in time after verse one. Verse two is clarifying verse one. Because if you just had verse one, in the beginning God created heaven and the earth, you might think, oh, he, he made the earth like it is today, full of people and animals and continents and plants and so on. Verse two is clarifying, no, no. When God first made the heaven and the earth, the earth was without form and, and empty. It didn't have the, 
the, the continents separated from oceans. It didn't have plants, it didn't have animals, it didn't have humans. Because God spent the rest of the creation week forming and filling the earth, you see. So that's why verse two is there. It's a clarification that when God first spoke the earth into existence, he didn't, he didn't make it like it is today. He took time to make it like it is today. He took six days to do that. So that's why verse two is there. So you can't put a gap of time between verse one and verse two because verse two doesn't follow in time. Verse two follows logically. It's giving an explanation of verse one. Now the rest of Genesis is different. It's called vav consecutive and that does follow in time. That's and followed by a verb in the original Hebrew word order which is not always the same as English. And said God and so on. Said is a verb so yeah. So that does follow in time but there's no gaps. There's a lot of good science as well that confirms that God created thousands of years ago. For example, the fact that we find C14 in diamonds. C14 is a variety of carbon. Most carbon is called C12 because it has six protons and six neutrons in the nucleus. There's a variety called C14 that has two extra neutrons and that makes it unstable. C14 doesn't want to be C14. It would really rather be nitrogen. And so uh, in a few thousand years, it'll just, it'll just change into nitrogen. You don't have to do anything to it. And that happens atom by atom. And uh, C14 lasts, it's got a, what's called a half-life of 5,700 years, which basically means that C14 cannot last millions of years. It can't. And yet, uh, we find C14 in diamonds that secularists believe to be one to two billion years old. Well, they can't possibly be that old because the C14 would be gone if they were even one million years old, there wouldn't be a single atom of C14 left in them. So that's an issue. A lot of stuff like that. I do other presentations on that. But the question I want to ask now is, does this really matter? Because historically what happened is the secularists came along, and they were very intentional. They wanted people to not believe the Bible. And so they began in making claims about the rocks, that the rocks have to be millions of years old, therefore the Bible's wrong. And a lot of the theologians, not all of them, but a lot of them compromised and said, well, maybe we can allow for that. Maybe we can allow for interpretations like the gap theory or the day-age theory, because after all, it's not a salvation issue. We don't want that to be a stumbling block to salvation. And I get that. Their intentions were good. But that doesn't mean that that was right to do that. Okay? Um, is millions of years versus six days, is that a salvation issue? Not in the sense that, I'm, nobody's claiming that you have to believe in six days to be saved. Fortunately, God doesn't require us to have perfect theology when he saves us, right? We're saved by God's grace, received through faith in Christ. And it's that simple. That being said, it is an important issue. And uh, you know, out of gratitude for our salvation, we ought to get our theology as right as we can. It's an important issue, kind of like gravity. Gravity's not a salvation issue. You can not believe in gravity, you'll still go to heaven. You'll probably beat me there, right? Gravity's not a salvation, but it's an important issue. And so it is with the time scale of creation. It's important for two reasons. First of all, it's important because it is what the Bible teaches. Anything that the Bible states, that, where there's no controversy, where it's just clearly stated, it's not symbolic or anything, there's no doubt about how to interpret it, we, we ought to believe it, right? Granted, most of us can't read the Bible in the original languages, but there are many fine English translations of scripture. They all say six days. It's been properly translated. Or you can get computer software and go back and look at the Hebrew words and see where they're used elsewhere. There's no doubt, six days. No doubt about that. You see, the same Bible that teaches that God created in six days also teaches the virgin birth of Christ, that Jesus turned water into wine, 
walked on water, calmed the storm, raised the dead, raised himself from the dead. The same Bible teaches all those things, right? But if you say, yes, but I don't think I believe in the six days of creation because uh, most scientists say that's impossible. So I, I'm gonna reinterpret that. It's just a spiritual six days or something. I got news for you. Most scientists would say a virgin birth's not possible. Turning water into wine's not possible. Resurrection from the dead's not possible. You gonna reinterpret those sections? Because the scientists say that can't be done? And by the way, the resurrection of Christ, that is a salvation issue. If Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins. Your faith is in vain. The Bible itself says that, right? That's in 1 Corinthians 15. So, now some people would say, oh, but that list on the right there, Dr. Lyle, those are, those are miracles, and so they're not constrained by science. I agree. But wasn't the creation of the universe a miracle? Right? If not, I'd like to see you do it. There's another reason why we don't want to add in the millions of years, and that concerns these fossils that we find all over the earth. Now, we do find fossils everywhere. I would expect that, because the Bible says there was a worldwide flood. It's gonna kill organisms, bury them in sediment. That's how you get fossils. Of course, there's fossils everywhere. But my secular colleagues, they reject a worldwide flood because they wanna believe those fossils were deposited gradually over hundreds and hundreds of millions of years. Now, if you believe that, if you hold up a fossil and you say, I think this is 100 million years old, you've got a huge theological problem because a fossil's a dead thing. And you say, yeah, I've got death 100 million years ago. You got death before Adam sinned. But wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say that death came into the world as a result of Adam's sin? By man came death? It's not just in Genesis. It's reiterated in Romans. It's reiterated in 1 Corinthians 15. By man came death. But if you believe in millions of years, even if you don't believe in evolution, but you think, well, maybe God created progressively over hundreds of millions of years, you got it, then it's death, by death came man. Those are logically contrary positions. They cannot both be true. It's either by death came man or by man came death. You can't have it both ways. Remember when God created the world and he looked and he saw everything he'd made, behold, it was very good, the text of scripture says, correct? So you can imagine Adam and Eve enjoying that paradise. It wasn't just the Garden of Eden. Everything God made was very good. The Garden of Eden was perhaps extra special. The Garden of Delight, that's what Eden means in Hebrew. So they're enjoying that paradise. But if animals had already been living and dying and killing each other for hundreds of millions of years, and then God finally got around making the Garden of Eden, that means the Garden of Eden is sitting on top of millions of years worth of fossils. Millions of years worth of death, struggling, disease, bloodshed. And yes, we do find fossils with evidence of disease in them, things like arthritis, cancer, so on, yeah. Were those diseases in the world when God looked at it and said, oh, it's very good. That doesn't make sense, does it? Why would you bother praying for your sick friend if, if it's very good that they're sick? No, Jesus healed the sick, right? He temporarily reversed the curse, and in the future, he'll permanently reverse the curse. Something we all look forward to. Now, some people say, oh, I think it was just human death that was introduced when Adam and Eve sinned. But I don't think you can defend that biblically because when God confronted Adam and Eve, he provided skins of clothing. Those would be animal skins. God skinned an animal or animals to provide those clothing, that clothing for Adam and Eve. God instituted animal death at the time of Adam and Eve's sin. And that must have been shocking to them because they hadn't seen that before. They, and it made them realize what they had done and the devastating effects of sinning against an infinitely holy God. Gave them a little taste of that. Perhaps a picture of Christ to come as well. I always thought maybe it was a lamb. That, the Bible doesn't say what animal God used, but maybe it was a lamb. And they got to see that this animal dies even though it didn't deserve it. And that, that bugs people, right? Why do animals have to suffer death when Adam was the one who sinned? 
And the answer is because God gave Adam dominion over the animals of the earth. That's how authority works. Authority affects, when, you, someone, when someone's an authority and they do something wicked, it affects everything and everyone under their authority. We understand this all too well. When our government does something stupid and wicked, we all suffer as a result of that. That's the nature of authority. Now, some people say, oh, I got you here because you have to at least have plant death before Adam and Eve sinned, right? Because they're eating plants or plant parts. But the interesting thing is, biblically, plants are not considered alive. The biblical word for life or living is nefesh. Nefesh. And animals and human beings are considered nefesh. Nefesh kai, living creatures. Plants are never referred to in scripture as nefesh kai. They're not literally alive. Now, modern biologists have a different definition of life, and they include plants in that, and that's fine. But my point is, the biblic under the biblical definition of, of life, plants are not living to begin with, and therefore they don't literally die. Now, we can metaphorically talk about a dead plant, but that doesn't mean it was ever alive in the same way that we are, right? Plants are in a different category. You can talk about a dead battery. It was never really alive, right? We understand that. You come across a so-called dead tree. That's nice. Think I'll sit on that for a little while, take a picture of it, put it over the mantle. That's nice. If you come across a dead animal, you say, oh, that's nice. Let's sit on that for a little while, take a picture of it, put it over there. That's different, isn't it? Yeah. We recognize animal death as an intrusion into a world that was once perfect, but I could imagine that in the eternal state. So, by the way, if you don't understand this, if you don't understand that it's because of our sin that the world today is not the very good place it was originally, then you tend to blame God for the problems that we have. Somebody dies, and some God of love you are. Why did you allow my friend to die? A lot of people have that feeling. There's, there's someone who doesn't embrace a literal Genesis. Because the moment you embrace a literal gen Genesis, you realize it's not God's fault the world is broken, it's our fault. God told Adam what would happen if he rebelled. You will surely die. You'll be mortal. Dying, you, the way it's worded in Hebrew, dying, thou shalt die. Or, or basically saying you'll be mortal on that day. Your death is certain. Doesn't mean he would die that day. It means his, his death would be certain on that day. So you'll be mortal. And so when someone dies, we need to remember, it's not God's fault. It's our fault. We in Adam rebelled against God, and we continue to rebel against God of our own free and perverse choices. We need someone to pay the penalty for our sins and to change our nature to be righteous. And that's something only Christ can do. So when someone dies, it's not God's fault. It's, it's our fault, right? The problem with the world is not God. The problem is you. Me too, but mostly you, okay? Because <laughs> there's more of you. Anyway, you get the idea. We're sinners. We need to have our nature changed. That's something Christ can do. We don't deserve the blessings that we get from God. We live in a very entitled generation, right? Everybody, I deserve that. I, I deserve free education, free healthcare, and what have you. I like to remind people, no, what you deserve is death and hell. You've earned that. Anything you get that's better than that is by God's grace and his mercy. It really is. It's only by God's grace that he didn't execute you in your sleep last night. Because that is what you deserve. We all do. God is gracious. Did you know you can't consistently believe in millions of years and a worldwide flood? Because you see, a worldwide flood would destroy any previous fossil record. It was violent. Secularists believe there was no worldwide flood, that the fossils were deposited gradually, whereas a worldwide flood would deposit most of them at the same time. There might be a few fossils after the flood, but not very many. 
And therefore, there are Christians who, and I don't doubt their salvation, they believe in Jesus, but they'll say, yeah, but the flood of Noah, that couldn't have happened because the world's billions of years old and the fossils are millions, millions and millions of years old. And so there was, the flood of Noah must have been just a local event limited to the Mesopotamia Valley. There's a prominent teacher who goes around teaching that. But what does the Bible say about the extent of the flood, local or global? Genesis 6, 17, God's speaking, and he says, and behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy, what, a few things here and there? No, to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, that would be under the sky. That'd be everything, right? And everything that is in the earth shall die. Genesis 7, 19 through 20, the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail, the mountains were covered. That's a global flood, folks. All the high hills or all the mountains, same word in Hebrew, that were under the whole heaven, that's under the sky. So was Mount Everest underwater during the flood? According to scripture, yeah, it was. All mountains were. I live in Colorado Springs. I get a nice view of Pikes Peak when I drive to church. And th thinking about that underwater, man, that's a lot of water. Now we do think the mountains were pushed up towards the end of the flood, and that's suggested in Psalm 104 where the valley sank, the mountains rose, and so on. But nonetheless, the world was once underwater. There's no doubt about that, the entire world. The Bible makes it clear, all flesh died, right? Every creeping thing, every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. Every living substance was destroyed. Noah only remained alive and they that were with him on the ark. So the Bible's clear, it was a global flood, which means the fossils can't be billions of years old. They were deposited primarily by that worldwide flood. By the way, you can't have a local flood that covers the high mountains, right? What would that look like? It would look like this. Local floods do not cover the high mountains. Water seeks its own level. We get that. Or the purpose of the rainbow. God's promise never to send another, was it another local flood or another global flood he was promising not to send? Another global flood, right? Because if it was a local flood, then God's bro broken his promise thousands of times. We do have local floods, right? But we've never had another global flood. Not since the original. Why would you build an ark the size of an ocean liner, take two of every air-breathing land animal on board for a local flood that you knew was coming? Why not just move, right? I mean, that would be a lot easier. Why would you take birds for, you know, birds, there are birds that fly from um, Alaska to Hawaii. And of course, there's no land in between. They, they, that's, birds have an incredible range. You wouldn't need to take birds on board an ark for a local flood. That wouldn't even make any sense at all. Well, the church is preaching a message. Come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. The gospel, that's right, we want to teach that. There's been an attack, however, and one of the attacks is millions of years. Deep time, as it's sometimes called. And that impacts, and our reaction to that is, well, that's a miss. It didn't hit the cross, because you know that's not a salvation issue. What does millions of years have to do with Jesus on the cross? Well, what we fail to recognize is millions of years is an attack on Genesis. If millions of years is true, Genesis isn't. And if Genesis isn't true, then why do we even need a savior? Because it's in Genesis where we learn that death's the penalty for sin, that Adam rebelled against God, that we're descended from him and have inherited that nature. That's all in Genesis. Satan's crafty. If he were aiming at the cross, we'd be concerned. You can get books to defend the resurrection of Jesus. But Satan's crafty, he aims at the foundation, and we think it's just a side issue. 
when really it's a fundamental issue of biblical authority. Is God's word true from the very beginning? And then all these different attacks came historically because we didn't defend we didn't defend very well the six days of creation, and so that paved the way for things like naturalism and Darwinian evolution and so on. No global flood, and they impact. We think it's a miss. Really, it's a direct hit. That's exactly where the enemy was aiming, right at our foundation. And we need to wake up and realize this is an attack on our foundation. And the result of all these different attacks on Genesis is unbelief. Because if God didn't get the details right in Genesis 1, why would we trust that he got the details right in Romans or 1 Corinthians or in the Gospels? And then these symptoms happen. Prayers outlawed in schools. That bothers us. Well, trust in Jesus, which we should do, but we're not doing what he's commanded us to do. Newsflash, creation's outlawed in schools. And we say, oh, well, Jesus is going to return. We have this, you know, hunker down and just wait when God told us to go and make disciples of all nations, right? Jesus is going to return, but wouldn't it be awesome if we could offer him to him the nations? We did what you asked. The Bible's outlawed in schools. Well, let's get the Bible back into schools. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for doing what can be done politically. We should vote in a way that's consistent with God's law. Don't get me wrong. But my point is, if this nation is to be one to Christ, it won't be through politics. It'll be through the proclamation and defense of the gospel. And that defense begins in Genesis. Newsflash, 10 commandments outlawed in schools. Well, let's, let's concentrate on worship. Church can be doing a lot of good things, but if we're not defending the faith once for all delivered to the saints, then we're, we're not being obedient to God's word. And the result of that, of us not recognizing the foundation of foundational importance of Genesis and saying, well, it doesn't matter what you believe about Genesis. That's the result. In the minds of people, the gospel has become obscured by unbelief. People don't think they can believe the gospel because they, they've been told that the Bible was disproved in the very first chapter of the very first book. Why would you believe anything that comes after that? Well, that's why I founded the Biblical Science Institute. We want to come alongside the church, repair the damage that's been done, show you you can trust in Genesis. It's real history. When these different attacks come, we want to warn you, these are attacks on the Christian faith. And then we show you how to refute these arguments with the various resources that we have that you'll, you'll find out in front there. And then ultimately, we'd like to be in the background. We'd like everyone in the church to recognize that these are attacks on the Christian faith. And we'd, we'd like everyone in the church to be able to refute these arguments. And you say, oh, but, but I don't have a PhD. You don't need one. You don't need one. God calls a few of us to go out and specialize in this particular area of science and what have you. But anyone can defend the Christian faith. And, you know, the, the, um, the proclamation you know, that, that Peter gives us in his epistle, uh, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks a reason uh, of the hope that's in you with gentleness and respect. Peter's the one that gives that proclamation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter was a fisherman. And that's a, that's a very noble career, but it's not one that we think of as an academic career, right? And yet Peter's the one that tells us, hey, you defend your faith. I think that's, that God did it that way for a reason. We can all defend the faith. And it's not that difficult, but it does require a little bit of study. And, and by the way, if you're having a conversation with somebody and they ask you a question you don't know the answer to, it's okay to say, oh, I don't know. I'll go research that and let me get back with you. It takes a lot of the pressure off when you realize you can do that. But if we defend the faith effectively, then people, then we can say, come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. And people say, I get it now. It's because what Adam did, I'm born into a world rebelling against God, sinning against him. 
and I need someone to pay for my sins and change my nature. So, well, we have a lot of great resources on our website, biblicalscienceinstitute.com, and then resources that we have out front. We have this presentation on DVD, Understanding Genesis. I wrote a book that goes along the same lines that will go into a little more depth showing you how to uh, defend the six days of creation in, uh, uh, more effectively. And I've been told that I sometimes talk too fast, so I wrote the book really slowly. You can take your time with that and, uh, and hopefully enjoy that. And there's some examples, too, of me refuting critics. Uh, the Ultimate Proof of Creation, a great book that I wish all students would read before they go off to college. And I, frankly, I wish every human being would read this. I think it would just help. It demonstrates that the Bible is true from the beginning. And it does it in a way, people think, well, I'm going to have to learn a lot of science. No. It, not really. It's, it's, it doesn't have a lot of science in it. It's going to show you, uh, well, I, d I don't want to spoil the surprise, but it will give you a bulletproof argument for biblical creation. And we have that on DVD as well. Uh, again, Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, how to better enjoy the night sky from a Christian perspective. Uh, you have pretty dark skies here. I would imagine you would, especially if you, if you can get away from the city a little bit. Um, if you want to get a telescope, what kind you might want to get and how to use it. If not, there's a lot of stuff you can see naked eye, meteor showers, you don't need a telescope for that. So that's just a fun resource that you might want to look into. If you want more of an apologetic book, Taking Back in Astronomy, which refutes the Big Bang and the billions of years in space. Keeping Faith in an Age of Reason answers over 400 alleged Bible contradictions. You've heard the critics say, you can't trust the Bible because this verse contradicts that verse. Well. It doesn't, I checked, and so you can uh, see my research there. Introduction to logic, how to use your mind properly into the glory of God. That's a wonderful topic, how to reason properly, how to think properly, how to avoid being fooled by fallacies, errors in reasoning that are rampant in the world today. A lot of nonsense happened in the last few years that could have been avoided if people were thinking logically, uh, which is to say they're thinking biblically, because logic stems from the mind of God. We have a teacher's guide, too, if you want to use that with your students. Um, I went through my own book with my Sunday school class, and we recorded that. That's the Get Logical DVD series, so you might look at that. Ten Sunday school lessons on logic. Uh, the, the previous message that I did for the Sunday school class, Dinosaurs in the Bible, we have that as well. Don't forget the packs, the, uh, the uh, book pack, 20% discounted. Uh, the DVD pack, 20% discounted, or the library pack, 30% discounted. That's only for today. That's only here. And that'll give you an immediate creation library uh, that I think would be very helpful to you. And we do have children's resources as well. So please, please get those. Don't forget to sign up for our free monthly newsletter. It, again, it's an electronic newsletter. You'll get it in your email. So please be sure to put your email address or you'll get nothing. Okay, and we, it just kind of keeps you informed on what we're doing at the Biblical Science Institute. So there's no catch. It is totally free. Take advantage of that. Not too many things free in this world, just salvation and our newsletter. So <laughs> check that out. And biblicalscienceinstitute.com. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you.